Welcome back to Mythic Sky Storytime. In this episode, I'm going to talk about personal mythology. In others, they I may be more focused on astrology, but today I wanted to talk about story in general and how we all walk through the world with stories about our lives, about each aspect of life. And some of these stories, some of these myths, we have inherited, we carry from our parents, our grandparents, and even further generations back. Other stories are more culturally tied or linked to society, and these can be stories or myths that are about relationships or money or health or education, right? every area of our life. And when I use the word myth, it's often misunderstood in our in the general culture, the larger culture and society, to be a synonym for falsehood or fake. But really, when I'm using the word myth, I'm using it as a synonym for story, particularly archetypal story or symbolic story, right? The myths of ancient cultures were not necessarily literally true, but they were the way that cultures made sense of their lives. And we do the same thing in the present day. We might not have the sort of fantasy and mythical creatures uh, that we see in cultures around the world, but we still use story to make sense of our lives. And so in my personal myth course, that I have available to anyone who's interested, it's an opportunity to unpack those stories, to really understand your personal worldview on various aspects of your life and how you came to hold them, and whether those perspectives, whether those stories, those myths are in service of your greatest potential, or are they holding you back, impeding you from accessing greater opportunity? greater experience. I think we're always ourselves. I don't think there's really a false self, but there are aspects of self that we might not be connecting with when we continue to hold stories that don't serve us, right? So if that's about partnership and love or romance and the stories you were told or absorbed just by watching the people around you as a child around partnership are not in your best interest or really how you perceive love and partnership, but learning to sort of unpack and retell those stories so they are in greater alignment with your own journey can be a process. And a way of doing that and unpacking those is you first become aware of the stories that you are carrying, whether consciously or unconsciously. And then from there, you can cherry pick what part of those stories are in service to you and what part of those stories you need to let go of or even literally rewrite, right? Through journaling, even just speaking it aloud and retelling stories so that they are serving you and not impeding your growth. And as I was saying, you know, these stories that we carry, some come from family. Some are actual stories that family members have told us. Others are stories that we've presumed we understand, right? That we deduce why our grandmother was a certain way based on sort of snippets of information we've gathered over the years. 
and other things we we absorb unconsciously, right? We're not even actively thinking, oh, well, my grandmother was in relationship, whether with my grandfather or other partners before or after him that didn't support her independence. And because I see her to be someone who lacked independence and wasn't supported to be more courageous, and some of that can be generational or culturally tied, right? But then how is that story imprinted upon me when I go to walk in the world and develop my own relationships? And how secure am I in being independent in relationship, in partnership? Not asking my partner for independence, but insisting that that be the relationship that I'm in. And if it's not there, not being in the relationship, or do I acquiesce because that was what was mirrored for me, right? So when you unpack these stories, you can start to see your patterns and what is mirroring the past and what is maybe in reaction to the past, right? So people who were raised by nannies as children tend to be hyper-involved helicopter parents because in in reaction to their childhood where maybe mom or dad or mom and dad were largely absent, they become hyper-involved in their children's lives. And then what is the story that their children are learning of what it means to be a parent, right? So looking at these stories and where do they come from and how you've responded to them. And some, as I said, are cultural, right? They're not necessarily directly family related, but what is your culture, your society showing you as to the proper way to parent, the proper way to love, the proper way to be successful, or that there even is such a thing as the correct or proper way to do so. And if you deviate from that, that is somehow a reflection on your value, right? We carry those stories as well. And when you really start working with story, you start to understand that since the earliest times in human history, we have, as a species, looked to story, to metaphor, to symbolism, in the Jungian terminology, to archetype, to make sense of our world, to make sense of our our personal lives, as well as the collective. And it's a fundamental part of being human is to look to story to make sense of the world around us or our personal lived experience. One of the sort of easier or more obvious examples that can show up in Greek mythology that many people are aware of, at least part of the story, is Demeter and Persephone and Hades in the Greek myth or uh, Ceres, Persephina, and Pluto in the Roman version of the myth in a sort of super cliff note version of their and just a snippet of their story Demeter who was a goddess she was the goddess of the harvest and grain and um, really governed a lot of the natural world had a daughter Persephone and one day Persephone is wandering in the garden with her mother and she picks a pomegranate. And as she picks the pomegranate, she is pulled into the underworld by Hades. Now, in both Roman and Greek mythology, the underworld is not the Christian version of hell. 
It's simply where souls go when they are not incarnated. But it is considered sort of under, beneath the terrestrial embodied plane of existence. And so she is abducted by Hades, by Pluto, and Demeter does not witness the abduction. She simply suddenly cannot find her daughter. And they were very close in psychological terminology. One might even say they were enmeshed. In her constant searching for her daughter, she becomes more and more grief-stricken. Now, as the goddess who governed the natural world, her grief then became manifest in the natural world. And as she became more and more depressed and longing more and more for her daughter, the world, or what the Greeks knew to be the world, was sent into what we now understand as winter and fall, but it appeared to be an ice age, right? The world was sent, plummeted into greater darkness and cold. And the humans of the world at the time, the Greeks of the world, as they were the ones telling the story, were struggling to survive. And in their struggle, it is believed in the story that Zeus or Jupiter was observing what was happening and intervened and negotiated with Hades, with Pluto, to let Demeter, who was not, should not have been allowed to leave the underworld, to leave it for half of the year, right? So she was required to be in the underworld for half of the year, and half of the year she could spend with her mother on Earth. And in this negotiation, right, then Demeter is able to see her daughter part of the year. And that is this transitional period when she is with her daughter, and then the transitional period when she is gone and then she is gone, right, has, is how the Greeks came to explain the four seasons. So when Demeter is with her daughter, it is summer, right? And as summer wanes on, and she knows that she will soon be returning to the underworld with Hades, she starts to become depressed and saddened. And so the world shifts into fall. And then when she is gone, the world is in winter. And then in anticipation of her daughter's return, the world starts coming alive again with spring, right? So it is a myth. It's a metaphor. It's a story, but it's a story to explain the seasons. And so we, in our own lives, do this in a similar way of using story to explain events and circumstances in our own lives. And that myth is much more complicated and has many more details, but that could be a show in and of itself. So as we continue to explore personal myth, one of my professors in graduate school has done a lot of work around this, and he and a colleague of his have written a couple of books and articles on the topic of personal myth. And they describe um, Stanley Krippner and Feinstein um, describe personal myth in the following way. 
Your personal myth is a loom on which you weave the raw materials of daily experience into a coherent story. You live your life from within this mythology, drawing to yourself the characters and creating the scenes that correspond with its guiding theme. Right? So what they're getting at here is that we have these stories that we, and when we've inherited them, we may need to assign roles to people in our lives that fit the current story that we are carrying because we may not be able to make the leap to adjust the narrative. And so while we are walking through and living into a certain story, we, with others, co-create a situation or an event or an environment that is in alignment with the story that we are walking in and, and living into. And what often happens is that when this story is not healthy, is not in our best interest, events and circumstances or people that reflect contrast to the story you've been living into show up, then you have to decide whether consciously or unconsciously to change the story or rationalize the incongruency. And as I was saying, a lot of the stories we carry are not conscious. We're not actively telling ourselves, oh, well, I'm in the same kind of relationship as my grandmother because she told me about how she ended up married and and therefore I'm repeating that. Or she told my mother who then told me and now I'm living out the same story. It's rarely that direct. And unless you've been doing some self-exploration, you may be wholly unaware of the repeated stories that you're living into. And so they're happening at this unconscious level. And as I was saying, and some of that is family, it can be culture, it can be society. And it's really what Jung, Carl Jung talked about with the collective unconscious, and that all of humanity has stories interwoven that parallel each other, even if the specific details are nuanced to time and place and individual. Thematically, there is a thread throughout time. And when he talked about the collective unconscious, one of the writings on his concept of it is the following. At a more or less superficial level of the unconscious is undoubtedly personal. I call it the personal unconscious, but this personal unconscious rests on upon a deeper layer which does not derive from personal experience and is not a personal acquisition, but is inborn this deeper level, this deeper layer, I call the collective unconscious. I've chosen the term collective because it is part of the unconscious that is not individual, but universal. So within this collective unconscious, according to Jung, are archetypes, right? They're sort of these universal stand-ins, surrogate representations of a given experience or character or shared identity. These characters, these archetypal symbols are found 
throughout our world and culture, cross-cultural, right, that they show up in symbols, in imagery, in the themes of literature and film and plays and music. Obviously, myths like the one about Demeter and Persephone, fairy tales, folklore, right? All of these ways of telling story, right? Even if it's just a symbol, a logo tells a story. So all these ways of telling story are imbued with archetypes that are then tied to the collective unconscious. So some of the archetypes that Jung identified is the mother archetype, um, right? That is a universal concept that is cross-cultural. The notion of a mother and what the role a mother plays or what it means to mother, which may not even be gender-based, right? But the act of mothering is a cross-cultural experience that many people are able to see this thread of what it means to mother. Um, Whether you are the mother, the woman, or the person who's given birth, mothering is this universal concept. Likewise, the concept of father and fathering is a universal concept, right? Joseph Campbell wrote, the hero has a thousand faces, right? The concept of a hero or heroine, and he was really building on Jung's work, these universal principles, these universal archetypes of the notion of a hero and the journey that he or she takes appears to be cross-cultural, right? There appears to be sort of a universal arc of story. And that involves many of the archetypes that Jung identified, right? So the sage or mentor, the villain, the trickster archetype, the one who's trying to sort of trick the hero or heroine, who's sometimes it's more playful, right? I always think of like Wile E. Coyote as a great trickster archetype. And others maybe have a more sinister undertone to them. But there is this, the trickster is often sort of a playful character thrown in to our lives to shake things up, to get us to, or encourage us to look at things more honestly, because they're not manifesting the way that we intended or we had hoped, and we're forced to regroup and rewrite the narrative that we're living into. The warrior is another archetype, as well as the leader, right? There's lots of them, but these are just a few examples. Now, when we look at story and myth and the concept of archetype, it's also really important to explore the notion of the shadow. Now, in psychology, in storytelling and myth work, really the shadow has a lot to do with our own stories and what within them we don't like looking at. It can be something that is traumatic um, and uncomfortable to look at. It can be what we avoid. And it can be about ourselves, right? If we are someone who is avoiding responsibility or accountability, and we project that. When with shadow work and looking at shadow and story, it's what we struggle to own and we project onto others to live into or play out for us. It's like we 
pass the baton and say, you play that role because I don't like to. And again, this is all happening unconsciously. But it is the part of ourselves that we struggle to look at, honestly. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is this isn't just unhealthy or less desirable behaviors or traits, but there's also what's called the golden shadow. When you project your best self onto others, you don't live into your strengths out of fear, out of being unsure of how it would be received, out of not, for whatever reason, linked to the stories that you're carrying, being afraid or shamed or concerned about living into your strengths, right? So with the golden shadow, we then project those strengths, those accolades that we are deserving of onto other people and make, you know, it happens particularly when we make people heroes, right? And rather than recognizing our own inner hero or heroine, but having that lived into or, or projected onto other people. And so when you work with story, when you work with myth, you start unpacking where these shadow characters are showing up and how to own them so that you can live into your greatest strengths and move through where you have struggled or where you're maybe not as together so that you can, again, shift the story instead of sort of skipping pages of the story to avoid looking at what's uncomfortable. So why do we do this work? When you unpack some of your personal myths, then the origins of your actions and attitudes and behaviors become illuminated. And it's really right, sort of that old adage of like, you have to know first. It's admitting things first before you can change them. So when you understand, to some extent, the underlying or driving forces behind certain actions or behaviors, then you are able to shift and change the story so that you become the narrator of your own life instead of unconsciously living into another story about you, right? And being sort of directed by others and becoming more self-directed. So when it comes to learning how to discover these stories, right, there's several ways you can do it, but journaling is an excellent way to start unpacking it. In the course I teach on personal myth, I have guided meditations and journey work that helps you connect with these stories and with your unconscious so that you can bring it conscious and have that shift take place. So through various activities, writing exercises and guided meditations, experiential experiences, you're able to connect with the unconscious on a given topic and discover these connections to your current experience so that when it is unhealthy or when it's not the story you're wanting to live into, you can then actively rewrite the story. And that rewriting then helps you to live a more authentic life and is an ongoing process. It's, there's not an end point to your myth 
making to your storying of your life. It really is getting to, you know, understanding and unpacking old stories and rewriting them, but that there may be a need to revisit the stories with some degree of regularity throughout your life because you evolve and change. And so you don't want to be carrying a story of you from a decade ago when you've lived more and experienced more. And maybe what was your truth a decade ago isn't as true today, right? So there's no end point to working with myth and story. You work with them and rewrite them. And sort of like any writing where editing's never really done, you could always edit more. That's true with your with your myths, with telling your stories as well. And while the course is a finite amount of time, you can always revisit stories, revisit your myth-making and and check in with yourself about how true something is several years down the road and do you need to rewrite again? Is there another edit that's needed? So I hope people have found this interesting and I know it's a little different than other podcasts where I'm sort of giving you concrete astrological information, but astrology is storytelling. And so this is how I see the two to interweave is in understanding the stories you carry, it's another way of unpacking your chart. I mean, the the etymology of the word astrology is the language or story of the stars. And it is an as above, so below interaction, right? The stars are telling the story of who we are or our potential. And so working with myth and story is another way of connecting with that story and finding ways of living into your story in the greatest possible way will also facilitate living into your chart's greatest potential as well. Thank you for listening. This has been Dr. Laura Tad, host of Mythic Sky Storytime. Please see the notes below for more information about the course I discussed in this episode, along with all pertinent referenced material. As always, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For questions or more information about how I work, please head to mythicsky.com. Until next time, when we gather again around this virtual campfire and I talk about the upcoming solar and lunar eclipses, have a stellar day.